Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. When I committed my life to Jesus Christ many decades ago, I thought life was just going to be a rose garden, a bowl of cherries. After all, Jesus loves me now and I love Him. It couldn't get any better. And everyone who loves Jesus thinks and acts alike. How could anything go wrong? Well, I quickly learned how wrong I was. Not about Jesus, but about everything in life being perfect. You see, we're all sinners. In order to walk with Jesus, we need to become more like him. But we're all at different places in our lives and in our walks with Jesus. So we don't always think alike. But in order to be more like Jesus, that means Jesus has work to do in our lives. He's got dross to scoop off of us, the, the sin, the problems, the issues that we have in life, from the moment of salvation until the moment he takes us to be with him in heaven. That's called living the victorious Christian life. That's what I hoped for when I became a believer. I hope to see it all around me, and I hope that I would live that way. Today, we're going to talk about that. This could be a life-changing discussion for each one of us, so I encourage you to get your Bibles ready as we walk through Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Did you know that supposedly 87% of Americans own and wear running shoes, but never actually run in them? Another survey claims that lots of us also bought exercise machines, only to end up using them as just another place to hang our clothes. But what about our daily Christian walk? How many of us own Bibles? but rarely use them to direct our walk with Jesus. It could explain why so many of us aren't so much walking with Him as we're just aimlessly meandering along the way, wandering on and off the path, and only bumping into Him every now and then. As Debbie says, in order to walk with Jesus, we need to be more like Him. But it's also true that in order to be more like Him, we need to walk with Him. So let's put on our spiritual walking shoes and get started. Oh, Jackie, I had to laugh when you were saying that because I have running shoes and I've never run. I had exercise equipment and sold it because we never used it. But fortunately, I chose to exercise my spiritual muscles and walk with Jesus so that I may be lacking on the physical side. But it's more important to be ready and walking with Jesus in that victorious life here on earth as we prepare for that wonderful life with him in heaven. So we're going to walk through quickly chapter 12 of Hebrews today because it gives us some direction as to how you and I can live and what we need to do to walk this life. Before we start, though, we need to give a little history of it. Hebrews is a wonderful book that discusses the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is for the first little over 10 chapters. And that is from a Jewish perspective. The author tells us how Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the high priest, better than everything, really. He gives us the better covenant, the new covenant. And he's telling this to Jews who are being persecuted because of their new belief in Jesus. And because they're being persecuted, they're kind of having a tendency to fall back onto the old covenant and the old sacrifices and the old beliefs about who the Messiah would be instead of the new covenant they're in and who Jesus Christ is. So they're going through a lot of struggles and they need to know how to walk this victorious life with Jesus so they don't fall back on the old ways. 
So the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who that author is, begins in chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a lot of instructions right there. It starts out by saying, therefore, we have this great cloud of witnesses following us. There are examples. We talked about them several weeks ago, about the cloud of witnesses, the faithful followers of Jesus Christ, before they even knew who the Messiah was, according to Hebrews chapter 11. The faith chapters, we could learn about their faith and how they fixed their eyes on the Messiah, even though they never seen him. So we are first and foremost to look at them as an example of faith. Again, they had faith in the upcoming Messiah. We've already seen the Messiah come. We've got umpteen chapters in the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he did for us. So we can look back at who the Messiah is and all that he's given to us, all that he's done for us because of his love and what we have to look forward to because of our relationship with him. He uses the example of a race here and other passages in scripture when Paul writes, he uses athletic imagery. So we talked about the athletic shoes and and that kind of thing. Here we have a cloud of witnesses. We have role models as athletes, don't we? People that are athletes look to the Hall of Fame. They look to people who played the same position before them. They have their athletic heroes and they have their audience, their crowd that they perform in front of. That's interesting because there's a lot of other athletic imagery as we go through this. And I love it how it says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. What if a runner put on a long flowing gown and high heels and tried to run in that? No, that would be an encumbrance. An encumbrance is anything that keeps us from living, in this case, the Christian life in fulfillment. And in the case of a runner, it's stopping anyone from being able to run to their best ability. So our next thing that we need to do is to lay aside those encumbrances. Now, they're not sins because the next thing says we're to lay aside the sin. Encumbrances are things that tangle us up in the world that, again, cause us not to be able to live a fulfilled Christian life. Maybe it's too much time on the Internet or social media. Maybe it's bad company who we don't sin with them, but it doesn't move us forward in our walk with Christ. We need to think about those things and remember that the Runners back then took these long flowing gowns that they had, these robes that they had, and they pulled them up between their legs and tucked them into their pants so that they didn't have anything stopping them from being able to run to the fullest. And we need to do that too, as well as laying aside every sin that so easily entangles us. And a sin is missing the mark. Hamatsia in the Greek means that you're shooting at a target all the time. And if you hit the center of that target, You're walking with God. Anything outside that perfect center target is sin in God's eyes. And we need to give it up. That means we need to go to God faithfully and with a pure heart saying, God, show me my sins so that I can confess them before you and help me so that I don't follow them anymore or fall into those pits that they put me in. And the next thing is run with endurance the race that is set before us. So again, the image is a runner. 
getting to run with endurance. You can't give up in the middle of the race or it's over for you. You have to continue on. So you have to have that endurance built up in you that your coach, your trainer, tries to instill in you. In a race or in just about anything in life, when we're working hard for it, we hit a wall at some point. A lot of runners, when they get to a certain point in the race, they hit a wall and they want to quit. But they have to get past that, go past that wall. And once they do, they get that renewed energy. We run into the same thing as Christians, where we hit a wall. Maybe something bad happens and we get mad at God, or maybe we get sick or whatever could happen. But we need to endure. We need to push on. Endurance means kupomone in the Greek. Hupo means under and mone means abiding under. It means we have to view every situation in life as coming from God and abiding under him in these circumstances. So when we want to quit, we don't because we trust God and we know he's going to carry us through and we continue to run with endurance, the race that God has given us spiritually. But when you run, you have to be running with a goal in mind, with an end point in your mind. And that end point is, according to the scripture, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So when we're looking at the goal, that goal is Jesus, always. When I think of a dancer, they have a pivotal point in the audience that they are to look at when they make their pivots. That's what we are to do, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So it's really pretty simple. If you want to just look at it this way, to have a victorious life, we lay aside the encumbrances, the things that are keeping us away from God, And the sins, and those are the sins that are stopping us from walking with God. And then run, run as a racer runs with the goal of Jesus Christ in mind. You're going for that finish line, and oftentimes at the other side of the finish line, the coach is standing there cheering you on. Your teammates are standing there cheering you on, and it just gives you that extra burst. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And when we do, keep in mind, the Old Testament saints endured, and we're to keep our eyes on them. Jesus endured, we're to keep our eyes on him. So we as believers need to endure by following both Old Testament examples and Jesus. Remember, Hebrews 5, 8 says that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So he suffered in life just like we do, just like the Old Testament saints did. 1 Peter 2.21 reminds us that you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So Jesus understands what endurance is. We know that we can go to him in understanding how to make it through those problems that we have. If he made it through without sin, we also, though we're sinners, can endure and make it through and hit the point of winning that race, or at least fulfilling that race to the best of our ability. So it seems like there are three points that come out of that, three things that we should follow. We should lay aside encumbrances and sin. We should run with endurance, and we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's right. So we learn in Hebrews 12, 3, more about Jesus. Why should we fix our eyes on him? Because consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So we fix our eyes on Jesus to know how to run, to watch him as an example on how to run, but also to realize that through him, we can endure whatever people throw at us because he did. Actually, going back to verse two, it reminds us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, 
and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even though he was being persecuted, even though he's God, even though he's perfect, he struggled and he found joy in his struggles and joy in his endurance on the cross because he didn't look at the shame. He didn't look at the problems. He looked at the perfect. He looked at the goal. He looked at what was going to come out of his dying on the cross. And that was to be able to have eternity with you and me. If we will have that perspective of endurance, we will look not at the problems, but at the joy set before us of being with Jesus, at the joy set before us of watching him walk us through our trials to grow us stronger in our faith and stronger in our relationship with him. That'll change our whole perspective. We tend to, or at least I have many times in my life, when a problem comes, I look at the problem. How can I fix the problem? My husband and I can fix the problem. Oh, it doesn't work that way. We do what we can, but we have to go to Jesus because we don't know what he's doing in all of this. We don't know what he wants us to do in a unique situation until we ask him. And then he shows us how to endure. So the next really important point that Paul goes into in Romans 12 is the role of discipline and how important discipline is. That's all part of endurance because you see, we could quit when the race gets tough, but when you endure, then you have to go through discipline. We don't like to go through discipline because people say, oh, you've done something wrong or, oh, you have to do it better or you get in trouble because you did something wrong. But that's not the point of discipline. Let's start in verse four, where it reads, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And that's, of course, as Jesus had done. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. This is so interesting because it tells us what place discipline has in each one of our lives. According to verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. So we are disciplined so we can use that endurance, learn about that endurance. Discipline is for our good because we're sons. Because God loves us, he disciplines us. And you think, well, that doesn't feel like love when we're chastised for something. But that's when we need to go on to the further verses that explain that when it says in verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, that's a good point right there. A good father wants to train his child upright, so he will discipline him. Verse 8 says, But if you are without discipline, at which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the God of spirits and live? So I stop there and ask, why do we get mad at God when he disciplines us? We respect our fathers when they do. And we should do the same thing for God because we have to remember that very important statement over in verse six. He loves us. That's why he disciplines us. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. It's not just doing right and wrong, which is important, but holiness means perfection. God says you are to be holy as I am holy. 
And God is the only one who is perfect, but he wants to sanctify us, draw us into his holiness, just as he is holy. That's quite a goal for God to have for each one of us and one that we should be running toward. And he's such a compassionate father, even though he's a good disciplinarian, he's compassionate because in verse 11, it says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love that verse. I memorized a long time ago when I was going through trouble because it tells me it's not fun to go through it. Nobody goes, yippee, bad things are happening. They're tough. Yet to those who've been trained by it, the more we go through discipline, the more we see God work, the more we trust God in the midst of our struggles or in the midst of our growth opportunities. Because discipline really are growth opportunities for us to grow closer to Jesus Christ. And so we see that as we're trained by it. And then once we've walked through this problem that we've been disciplined for, and by the way, it doesn't mean we've sinned. It just means that God has seen some imperfections in us that need to be purified, need to be made better. And once we've gone through those and we've seen what God has done, it says it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I'm telling you, I will take every one of those situations over again in my life because of how close it brought me to Jesus Christ and because I did find the peace of God through it. And afterwards, when I looked and saw that God did exceeding abundantly beyond all that I could ever ask or imagine in this situation, and he worked the details out for his perfect glorification. Now, again, the situation might not have changed or been had a good resolution as to I would have wanted it, but it was perfect in God's eyes and he changed me through it. That's what we need to see in discipline. And therefore, once we've been disciplined, it tells us in verse 12, we need to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. That's part of discipline is helping other people. We tend to now say, well, you know, I don't like what they're doing or what they're doing is sinful, but we just need to love the people. So we're going to forget the things that they're doing that are wrong. But that's not what this says. When we're strong, we need to strengthen those who are weak, which means we need to discipline those in our lives that need discipline in a proper way, in love as Jesus does it to us. And then it says in verse 13, it makes straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Endurance is possible. It all takes discipline. And it takes discipline where we're willing to accept it and grow from it, not get mad and turn away. It just sounds like exercise and physical therapy, actually, because exercise makes the weak parts of you stronger and it makes the feeble parts of you able to continue on and be stronger and the lame parts of you to be healed. All of those things are good things. Um, A loving father, again, would have us do those things. You know, sometimes physical therapy is not fun. I've seen my sister, who is a pretty strong gal, go through recovery from knee surgery, knee replacement, and anybody that's gone through that, they know what they have to do. They have to break through scar tissue or they're not gonna be healed. But if they do it, if they go through that painful physical therapy, then they're, they're so much better and it's worth it. And what do the people say? They say, no pain, no gain. Right. And that's the way with us. No pain, no gain. We are sinners, the Bible tells us, every one of us. Therefore, that sin needs to be taken away from us or it needs to be shown to us so we can ask God for forgiveness and trust in him to move it away. We've also got a lot of things that are just keeping us busy, 
that aren't glorifying God. God needs to work in our lives because he wants us to be more like him each and every day. If that's our goal, then we're going to have some pain in order to get the gain. But it's all for our good. You know, a person who wins an Olympic medal doesn't win it because they were lazy. They worked hard. They trained hard. They ran hard. They were exhausted. They wanted to quit many times, but they stayed with it and they won. And that's what we will have. We're talking about how important discipline is. And there's also a verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. We're not supposed to be surprised when tough things come upon us. It's going to happen. It's going to happen because we live in an evil world. It's also going to happen for our testing. A lot of people think, well, God doesn't test us. Of course he does. He said so right here, what you just read. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, he said God tested his people to humble them, to see what was in their hearts. Now, God already knows what's in our hearts, but he wants us to see what's in our hearts. And that comes through trials, through testing, through discipline. Let me give you an example. My husband's an entrepreneur, so for us, it's always been feast or famine. And we've had three different times where we've gone through some financial struggles. The first time, it was kind of like, well, this is part of life, God. You're going to help us through it. The second time, it was, why doesn't my husband learn from this and do the right thing? The third time, I thought, oh, maybe this is happening for my sake, so I can learn what God wants me to learn from this. And that's exactly what God wanted for me. God wanted to teach me through those humble times in my life. So he was testing me. And it took three times for me to listen in that particular scenario. Most of the time, I like to listen right away and obey because I don't want to go through it again. But I missed the boat on that one. God tests us to see what's in our hearts. What's in your heart today? What do you do to honor him or that dishonors him? We go back to talking about testing As we look at James chapter one, verses two through four, we're told to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, again, how can you feel it's joyful? But when we look at the end result, we can. It goes on to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You notice how often endurance pops up with our personal growth? Because we have to put ourselves under God's authority during these particular situations. So the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the purpose of trials. God wants us to be perfect. He wants us to be the men and women after his own heart. So God goes on to give them another exhortation in Hebrews twelve fourteen that says, now that you've gone through discipline and all these other things, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. Sanctification is our ongoing process of walking with Jesus Christ. When we're saved, that's a one-time occurrence in the past. That's our justification. But it isn't just a one-time appearance. Paul even says, work out your salvation day by day. And that means that we are every day to be growing closer to Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. And then we finally have the end result of our salvation, and that's glorification when we get to see Jesus. 
But we have to ask ourselves, am I living out my salvation day by day? Am I growing closer to Jesus with everything I do and everything I think and every direction I go? Because our Christian walk is supposed to be uh, like going up a ladder or a hill where we're always going up. Now, sure, you have times when you go down a little bit in life, but then you get right back up on the ladder and you keep going up. That's what sanctification is all about. And that's what God wants for us. The only way to have a victorious Christian life is to walk with Christ every day. And we need to remember that living out our salvation or working out our salvation is not the same thing as earning our salvation. We've got that. Now we're being sanctified. It's being perfected as we go along. That process will end when we get to glory because we're going to be working on our weaknesses all the way along, but it doesn't mean we're not saved. That is so true. Our salvation is not based on works that we do for Christ or ways that we try and be more Christ-like. It's based on our belief in Jesus Christ. The actual seventh thing that I see in this list of what we can do to have a victorious Christian life is a warning. It's a negative that we're supposed to stay away from. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up defiles many. That's important because if you notice coming short of the grace of God and the root of bitterness are right here in the same thought process, which tells me, but the root of bitterness towards God needs to be understood. They say that bitterness is a poison pill that we take, hoping it's going to kill the other person. But it doesn't. It destroys us. Bitterness is that ugliness inside of us. It's a poison, actually, is what the Greek word means, whether it's against other people or whether it's against God. But instead, we are not to come short of the glory of the grace of God, which means we are to watch, look for the grace of God and how we're living. And anytime somebody wrongs us, we need to take them to the Lord. Because God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And then finally, we end up in chapter 12, verse 28, where we're told, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So the end result in all these things that we see in chapter 12 are having an attitude of gratitude and living out our lives with acceptable service to the Lord. We have been blessed to see through chapter 12 of Hebrews how you and I can live the victorious life. First of all, we watch other saints in this case, Old Testament saints who have endured through trials and their faith has grown. Secondly, we lay aside all the encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us so that we are able to run with endurance the race that's set before us. And then number four is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And that's really the key to it all. The only way we're going to grow is if our eyes are constantly on Jesus because we'll be looking for what he wants us to do. And part of that looking at Jesus means we need to endure discipline and then pursue sanctification, uh, hold no bitterness towards others. And when we do all of those seven things, we will have a heart to show gratitude and service to God. Do you want to be victorious in this life? Or do you just want to walk around doing what you want to do, knowing that you're going to heaven, but not having joy in this life, not following the direction that Jesus wants you to go? It's, it's our choice. We can give up on the race. Or we can run the race and serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the victorious life. It's not doing what we want to do. Imagine when you get in heaven, do you think you're going to be doing what you want to do? No, you're going to be worshiping Jesus. 
But how many crowns are you going to have to lay at his feet based on how you've lived in this life? That's something to consider. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I can say, as for me and my life and everything I can do with my household, I want to serve the Lord, grow closer to him, walk with him every way and every ounce of life I have here on earth until I get to be with him in heaven. How about you? Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.